If you haven't already listened to the trailer, go ahead and give it a listen because we laid down some groundwork as to what the podcast is, is going to be about and some of the things that we want to talk about. But what Orlando and I were talking about for this episode is we figured we would start by laying down some uh, context for the early days, Ellen White and the birth of Adventism and how the church got started and I'm kind of talking about laying some groundwork, some foundation before we get into the meat and potatoes of the series. So the first series that we're doing that we want to kick off the podcast with is talking about Ellen White and the Adventist church and church history. This has been a pretty big topic of conversation for us over the past two years. Uh, a lot of what we've talked about in our own personal conversations has been regarding this topic. So we thought this would be a good place to start the podcast. Um, but before we really get into the nitty gritty and start discussing Ellen White and you know more modern uh, Seventh-day Adventist church things, we wanted to lay that foundation. So I'll hand it over to Orlando um, so we can kind of talk about the history and theology of the Adventist church, how it got started with the early days and the Millerite movement and all that. Yeah. To, to really understand uh, the Adventist church and where it came from, you really have to look at uh, the Millerite movement, right? Because that provides the, the religious and cultural milieu that really influenced uh, where we would go as a, as a future institution. Uh, so let's begin, um, William Miller was the one that really inspired the entire Millerite movement. Uh, he was born in 1782, raised in upstate New York, um, and he he did a lot of different things. He's you know served in a lot of different capacities in his life. Uh, he was a farmer, a constable in his town. Uh, he even served in the army. Uh, he even I think this is back in the War of 1812. He gathered. A few, uh, a few of the guys that were in his town, and they went out uh, to join in battle uh, with the army, and then eventually a few of the boys. He got the boys, the boys together. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, they eventually joined uh, the army, and it was there that Miller had one of his first um, divine experiences, uh, to say the least. And so, you know, there's a quote. Um, attributed to Miller, where he describes um, being in the battle, like being in the midst of gunfire and cannon fire. And he says, it seemed to me that the Supreme Being must have watched over the interests of this country in a special manner and delivered us from the hands of our enemies. So surprising a result against such odds did seem to me like the work of a mightier power than man. And the, the context of that quote was during the, I think the battle of, let's see, battle of Plattsburgh, where the fort that he was at was being besieged uh, by the British. And he and his comrades had come under fire and some of his fellow soldiers were shot and one of them was even killed. And all this happened right next to Miller and Miller came away completely unscathed. Physically speaking, uh, he may have came out of that with, with uh, some form of trauma, but physically he was unscathed. And for him, he believed that there was some sort of divine intervention uh, that occurred. And so that was one of, the, one of the big stepping stones that led him away from deism into believing that there is a God out there that is 
more than willing to engage and intervene uh, in the affairs of humanity. There was another experience that Miller had where he was asked to read a sermon. So back then, uh, there would be like these big uh, sermon compilation books. And so the preacher, the minister would, you know, open up the book and like they would just read the sermon out verbatim. And Miller was asked to, to step in and to read one of the sermons. And there's a quote from Miller where he says, as he was reading the, uh, the sermon, suddenly the character of a savior was vividly impressed upon my mind. It seemed that there might be a being so good and compassionate as to himself to atone for our transgressions and thereby save us from suffering the penalty of sin. I immediately felt how lovely such a being must be and imagined that I could cast myself into the arms of and trust in the mercy of such a one. And so that was another impressionable moment that really convinced Miller that there is a God out there that loved him deeply and that wanted the best, you know, the best for him. And so from there, he set out to study the Bible. He had been told that there were supposed contradictions in the Bible. And because of those contradictions, the Bible could not be trusted. So he took matters into his own hands and began to uh, just go through the Bible. And he even set out uh, a list of rules that governed his uh, approach to Bible study. And I think there are like a good 15 to 20 rules or propositions that he even set up. And we're not going to go through those, but, uh, but they're out there and you can look it up for yourself. At some point he thought, I can't just sit on this, right? It's, I got to do something with this information. Well, he did sit on it for a little bit. Uh, hmm. So he spent a good four to five years studying this out from like 1818 to 1823. So 1818 was when he first started this journey. He discovered God for himself, not the deist God where he, you know, God is not involved in the world. Like he began to believe in a God that could be involved in the world that wanted to be involved. And so he studied for about uh, five years. And that's when he uh, came across the day year principle, the 2300 day prophecy. And so by 1823, he had pretty much most of the ideas that would be encapsulated in the Millerite movement pretty much fleshed out. But he sat on those ideas um, up until 1832, when he published a series of 16 articles in the Vermont Telegraph. So it, it's quite a period of time that he kind of sat on those ideas. Um, I think it's interesting to note, uh, as an aside, that William Miller was a Freemason. And a year before he began to go public with his ideas about the 2300-day uh, prophecy, he resigned his Freemason membership, stating that he believed that the Freemason organization was not based on Christian principles. And because they were not based on Christian principles, he felt like he had to leave the movement or leave the organization. I just wonder what caused him to wait so long, you know, because I mean, I'm thinking some of the things that we're going to talk about, especially in future episodes, we were definitely hesitant to share at the very beginning of our of our conversations, right? I know that our motivation was 
we want to make sure that we thoroughly research this, that we study this, that we look at it from every angle possible. And then once mm -hmm. we, you know, once we finally have something solid, we can start sharing it. So I wonder if that's some of the things that he was facing too, right? With, with the theological component of what became the Millerite movement. Yeah, I know in, in Miller's biography, uh, it states that Miller felt nervous or he felt um, insecure in his ability to convey this information that um, like he may have, he may have not been the right person for this. Like, sure, he discovered it, but uh, he, I think he stated that he felt inadequate in regard to wanting to, in, to being able to share this information uh, with others. And that's what partially contributed to, you know, not going public with this information up until 1832. I think we could start with a 2300 day prophecy because that's really like the crux mm -hmm. of uh, what Miller focused on, right? Because that's, that is what led him up to, you know, the, the time of around 1844 because William Miller, he, he never set a specific date. Uh, he set a window of time from March 1843 to March uh, 1844. Like that was the original timetable. Uh, the specific day, October 22nd, 1844, I believe that was posited by uh, Samuel Snow. Yeah. And, and well, we can talk about him later. So yeah, so let's, yeah, let's dive into the 2300 day prophecy. So the 2300 day prophecy comes from the book of Daniel, uh, chapter eight, verse 13, uh, to be specific. And the verse is rendered like this, uh, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And that's, yeah, that's pretty much the verse, uh, in a nutshell. And he utilized a principle known as the day year principle. And that is what allowed him to interpret the prophecy as such. So William Miller stated that the beginning of the 2300 day prophecy began in 457 BC. And what, what made 457 BC significant was that there was a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. So that is the event that kickstarted the 2300 day prophecy, right? And then from there, the terminus point would have been sometime in 1844. Now you can go online and you'll find some very fancy and complicated charts that explain the 2300 day uh, prophecy in great detail. Uh, because you have subcomponents within the 2300 days. Uh, you've got the, uh, the, the 69 weeks from the time that Jerusalem is decreed to be rebuilt. Yeah, so a lot of, lot of subcomponents to this larger uh, prophecy. So another thing that we that we can mention here, like you said, there's a lot of different components in the 2300 day prophecy that William Miller was studying. Mm -hmm. But really the where we landed on or should i say where the millerites landed on um there's a lot of different points in time in this prophetic timeline that that we could focus on 
But really, I think what's what's important within the context of the Adventist Church, and what's important within the context of the Millerite movement, is the very end of the twenty three hundred day prophecy. Oh, for right? sure, that's definitely the most relevant part. Yeah, exactly. So what I'm thinking as I'm looking at the chart is, you know, the end of the twenty three hundred day prophecy. Uh, if you want to talk about how they got to the date, but I believe that they got to the interpretation of it as to what was going to happen at the end of the 2300 days before they got to an exact date as to when that was going to happen. Right. Because like you read in, in Daniel, um, Daniel eight fourteen, it said after the 2300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Mm -hmm. So when William Miller is studying the Bible, and he sees the words, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed, because this is a huge point in early Adventist history, right? Mm -hmm. How did they interpret that? How did he, you know, what did he think when he saw the phrase, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed? Yeah, a few different interpretations there. Um, the one that was most common was that the earth was believed to be the sanctuary, right? And so by virtue of the earth being cleansed, uh, they believed that that was Jesus coming back, right? Because, you know, God was going to use fire to purify the earth. And so they believed, okay, like cleansing of the sanctuary means cleansing of the earth, which means God is coming back to set things right, right? This is the second advent that, that will occur. That was, that was their assumption. So they basically interpreted the sanctuary being cleansed as after 2,300 days or after 2,300 years, mm -hmm. Jesus would return, basically. Yep. That was so, the idea. So once they get to this point, the Millerites really start to catch on at this point, right? They start moving, they start growing because they have a message at this mm -hmm. point. And that message is Christ's imminent return. It, this, it's around the corner. So tell us a little bit about when that time frame came into the mix and, you know, how they finally got around to October of 1844. Miller starts sharing these ideas publicly in 1832. He publishes a, a series of articles in the Vermont Telegraph that really started to take off. A lot of people began to ask questions. They started to write to the paper asking Miller, hey, uh, like, how did you come to your ideas? Is this really true? What are we to do? Uh, and there are some other figures that also came into the mix that helped popularize it because it wasn't just Miller. There are other people that began to take those ideas and kind of run with them, uh, really popularizing this idea that, hey, Jesus is about to come back. Like, get ready, get your affairs in order. Um, you know, don't plan to be around for like another 20 years. And that became the main message of the Millerite movement at the time. It was, you know, prepare for the second coming, repent. Mm -hmm. um, but then we get some pretty interesting byproducts of how they, how they executed that belief, right? Because they kind of went from Jesus' second coming is right around the corner. It's imminent to let's start sharing the word, let's start preaching, to we're not going to be around on earth anymore, to because we're not going to be around for much longer, let's start selling all our earthly possessions. 
let's you know let's start selling our homes our land anything that yeah. we own so that we can use the proceeds to continue growing this millerite movement to continue to spread the word that jesus was coming soon yeah no i think a person's belief in end time events will definitely influence how they conduct themselves in the present moment right so if you believe that god is coming back in like five to seven years time that's definitely going to influence how you live your life how you plan things out um so for them yeah many of them began to to sell possessions uh to some of them you know abandoned their occupations and just went you know full-time preaching this you know circuit preaching all that going around uh and i think it's interesting to note that uh the idea of Christ coming back soon was a countercultural idea in the fact that many Christians at that time uh, believed in post-millennialism, which means that there would be a year, uh, a thousand years of peace. And then at the end of those thousand years, then the judgment would occur and then Jesus would come back. Right. But what Mil William Miller and his associates were saying is, no, no, no. The judgment and the second coming of Christ are about to happen. And then the thousand years are going to happen. And so to and, and that that idea is, is known as premillennialism, which is a a pessimistic view uh, of humanity and the history of humanity, because it essentially says that, yeah, the world's about to collapse. Jesus is about to come back. And for Christians who are post or um, post millennialists, they're like, no, like things are getting better. And those ideas were mainly conditioned by people who were, you know, landowners uh, in America. So, you know, mainly, you know, white individuals who, because of, you know, you know, by virtue of their privilege, uh, and their affluence, for them, it was easy to believe that things were getting better, that humanity was progressing. And so Miller's ideas were countercultural. They they went against the grain of the common uh, the common understanding. So I think that's really important to keep in mind. So. At which point does Samuel Snow come into the picture? Like, does he kind of just come out of left field or who is this guy and how did he get involved with the actual, you know, time calculation of when Jesus was going to come back according to the Millerites? Yeah, so he comes into the picture uh, toward the end of the, the Millerite movement. So Samuel Snow was a, a former atheist turned Millerite preacher. And he, he really got involved uh, with, uh, with the Millerite movement. And it, there was a camp meeting in August of 1844. And he preached a message that became known as the, the seventh month or uh, the true midnight cry. And so his ideas regarding the 2300-day prophecy concluded that Christ would return on the 10th day of the seventh month and essentially that pointed to the day of atonement and so his ideas were based on the um karite uh, jewish calendar which corresponded with the date october 22nd 
1844. And so well, he's so the one he, that really. Sorry, so he ahead. really came out of there with, you know, really little little notice, right? Very short notice. So he goes into this camp meeting in August of the mm -hmm. same year, August yep. of 1844, and says, "Here are the receipts. I've done the math, mm -hmm. and it checks out that just two months from now." Eight weeks from now, in October of 1844, Jesus will come back. I'm just trying to imagine going to, you know, a church function today, and somebody's preaching from the pulpit and saying, hey, I did, I did the math, mm -hmm. and in two months, that's all she wrote. Yep. We have like two months left on earth. You know, I wonder how that was. Well, I guess we know how it was perceived back then, right? Because we know what happened after that. It, they kind of got whipped into a frenzy and started selling off all their earthly oh, yeah. possessions. And that's when things got crazy because they're like, well, what's the point in showing up to work on Monday if we have eight weeks on Earth? Yeah. Right. What's in, the in addition to that, August was a crucial time because uh, this was – more of an agrarian period. So many of these individuals were farmers and they planted food for themselves, mm. which meant that. So they... what's the point in planting next season's harvest mm -hmm. if we only have two months left on earth? Exactly. And so many mm. of not many, most of them, if not all, uh, neglected uh, the, uh, the, the summer planting, which meant that there would be no fall harvest. Yeah. But it, for them, it was a, an indicator of faith, right? Because if they were to have planted those crops, that would mean that, oh, this is kind of like a backup plan just in case Jesus doesn't come back. And so for them, you know, they, you know, it's like the whole idea of like putting your hand to the plow, but looking back like that, that was the sort of idea that was thrown around. So if they wanted to really have faith that Jesus was coming back, then you know they they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't plant the crops that they would need to harvest in the fall. So, what have you read, if anything, about how the people around them, so non Millerites, right, responded -Millerites, to yeah. this message? Because I'm just thinking, there's a bunch of people telling us that the world is going to end in two months, and and their movement is growing. They're growing in numbers. I see them selling off all their earthly possessions. Mm -hmm. It's at this point in the late stages of the Millerite movement, is it still growing? Like, how are people reacting to all this? Yeah, the, the Millerite movement definitely grew, uh, especially toward the end, right? Because, it, you know, they were just a lot closer to this window of time uh, that Miller had set. But there definitely was a, a negative reaction uh, to the Millerite movement. Again, one of the reasons was that Many Christians were post-millennialists as opposed to pre-millennial. Uh, and the Millerite movement was essentially taking individuals away from, you know, their previous denominations, right? So, you know, one can say that they were sheep stealing, uh, so to speak. But then those same individuals, some of them were also forced out of their denominations, which I believe is something that happened to Ellen White's family because they were members of the Methodist denomination. And I believe that they were forced out because of their belief in William Miller's ideas. So definitely a very, a very negative reaction. 
And I mean, it's, it's understandable because, you know, you have that verse, no man knows the day nor the hour. And yet here we have this public figure saying, hey, we've got an idea of when Jesus is coming back. You know, that kind of flies in the face of, of that particular Bible verse. So I can understand why there might be some animosity uh, toward the Millerites. And I want to read that verse because in a couple episodes, that verse is going to be real interesting for us. So oh, like for I said, sure. the, the point of this episode is we're just trying to lay the groundwork of the early, very early on Adventist church, how it got started, right? But this verse is going to come back in a couple episodes and it's going to, it's going to make an appearance. So Matthew twenty four thirty six, it's where it's found. And the context, context is it's talking about the second coming, right? And it says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the heavens, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. So literally, Matthew 24, 36, Jesus is saying nobody knows the exact day or the hour. That's, that's what the Bible says. Mm -hmm. And Willie Miller and the Millerites are preaching – October 1844, right? Initially, they were preaching a, a window of time between March 1843 to March 1844. And then after that window of time elapsed and nothing happened, then October 22nd, 1844 starts to get mentioned. And that, that gets initiated by, by snow. So October 22, 1844 comes around. Mm-hmm. What happens What happens on the actual day where the second coming is supposed to happen? What does that do to the Millerite movement? Oh, it was absolutely devastating. Yeah, most of the Millerites in the movement either abandoned Christianity entirely or went back to their respective denominations that they had left. Because we're talking about a group of people here who are just waiting for the second coming and are now unemployed. Mm -hmm. They're, they have, they don't have anywhere to live because they sold their homes, right? They yep. sold their earthly possessions in the name of the message. They don't have the hope of a quick turnaround in future earnings because they didn't plant to harvest. There is, there is no point in, in, planting and getting everything ready to harvest later on because there was going to be no harvest. So I'm assuming that all these decisions that they made in the past couple of months start to really hit home at this point. So that's why in, in the Adventist church um, in, and in church history, we refer to October 22nd, 1844 as a great disappointment. I think the great disappointment is an understatement for Oh, what yeah. they must have felt at that time. Yeah. And I mean, imagine being in the shoes of, of these Millerite believers, right? Like imagine what life was like in the 1800s. You know, they didn't have the modern amenities of life that we have today, right? So everything has to be done by hand. There's just a lot of menial work. And for them, it's like, wow, Jesus is, is about to come back. Our way of living is going to be forever changed. We're not going to have to have a scarcity mindset anymore. We, we won't have to work in order to, uh, to be, to eat or to, you know, 
and provide a living for ourselves and our children, like those worries are just going to be gone. And in addition to that, we'll be living with Jesus. Like we won't be separated by this, you know, large chasm of, of space anymore. We'll be with Jesus forever. And then for that not to happen, I mean, that's got to be devastating, especially for individuals that believed for years that Jesus was about to come back. And I believe there were reports that there were some individuals that were committed to, uh, back then they were known as insane asylums because they, they just went to such a, you know, a psychotic episode. Like that their broke mental them. health just deteriorated. Yeah. So up to this point, this is pretty much the end of what we would consider the Millerite movement. What happens to the Millerite movement after that point, right? After they realized that October 22nd came and went and Jesus still wasn't there. Do a lot of people just abandon the movement altogether, right? And it starts to fizzle out or what became of those people? Yeah. So at, you know, post great disappointment, you could pretty much split it up into two initial groups, uh, mainline Adventists, and then bridegroom Adventists. Um, most of the Millerites fell into the mainline Adventist camp, meaning that many of them abandoned Christianity entirely. They went back to their old denominations. Uh, yeah, so those are really the two main groups. Uh, but from there, the you know, let's talk about the bridegroom Adventists because that's where uh, things really get interesting. Let's talk about the word bridegroom. Where did that word come from? Well, the 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 term bridegroom uh, gets inspired from the parable of I think I believe it's Matthew twenty five, where it talks about uh, the ten virgins, right? So you have the 10 virgins waiting for the bridegroom to arrive, but then the bridegroom takes a really long time and the, the 10 virgins, they all fall asleep. And then the, vir uh, the 10 virgins are awoken from their sleep and someone tells them, hey, the bridegroom is here, the bridegroom is here. And five of the virgins were like, oh man, I've run out of oil in my lamp. We gotta go into town and get her oil. But then there were five other virgins that they had enough oil in order to, to get them through. And so the five wise virgins are able to go into the house where the wedding ceremony is occurring, while the five quote unquote foolish virgins go out into the town and you know they're looking for oil. But then by the time that they come back, the doors are locked and they aren't able to go in. And they essentially miss out on being able to see the bridegroom. The and doors are shut, you mean? Yeah, I, I guess you could say that the, <laughs> the doors were shut. There was hmm. a shut door. Got it. Yeah. We can, we can talk about that more later too. Oh, yeah. That, that's a discussion for another time. That, that, that phrase merits an episode uh, of its own, uh, to say the least. And so, and just to interrupt real quick, mm -hmm. this is found in Matthew 25 verses 1 through 13 is the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. And 
what I think is really interesting and almost ironic about this branch of the Millerite movement, right, that became to be known as the Bridegroom Adventist. What I think is really ironic is Matthew, this is the same parable, the same parable of the wise and foolish virgins. It ends in verse 13, Matthew 25, verse 13. And that says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So they literally just had the great disappointment in which they calculated the day and the hour in which the Son of Man was mm -hmm. coming. And now they're taking their name from the parable in which that Bible verse is in. I just, I just had to mention the irony in it all. Yeah, that, that is some heavy irony right there, man. <laughs> so... So this, okay, so this is like the Millerite, or uh, not the Millerite, the bridegroom Adventist understanding of, um, of the bridegroom parable. So since Christ had not come as king at the second coming or October 22nd, they proposed that he had instead come as a bridegroom to a heavenly wedding. And with Jesus as the bridegroom, they identified the heavenly New Jerusalem as the bride and the marriage as the act of Christ receiving his kingdom in heaven and the Advent believers as the virgins of the story. So it's almost like the stage by which this was happening was changed, right? So it's not like we got the date wrong altogether or we were mm -hmm. wrong about everything in this verse, but they shifted their viewpoint from this is going to be a physical thing that happens on earth, mm -hmm. right? To they shifted their focus to something is still happening during this date. Our study wasn't completely useless, right? But what's happening is now in the heavenly realm, right? This is happening in heaven, not on earth. Yeah. It's the, the nature of the event mm -hmm. is what is what changed, right? Going from the second coming to Christ receiving his bride. And so it's the nature of the event. So they, they still believed, oh, yeah, something happened on October 22nd. We just got the event wrong, we, but we got the date right. What did the mainline Adventist group believe as far as what had happened in, on that date, right? I mean, how do you even move forward from that if you don't believe that, oh, we're changing, we're changing the angle, right? How, how did the mainline Adventists handle that? Well, most of the mainline Adventists completely rejected the 2300 day prophecy. Like he got it wrong. We got fooled. Okay. Now we got to go back to our normal lives again. And so the bridegroom Adventists, they remained relatively united up until I believe it was March of 19, uh, 1845. And that's when a split occurred. Because some of them believed that uh, there was a, a jubilee year that, you know, allowed for Christ to still come, even into the year 1845. But after the month of March passed, then there is a, a split, a, a schism within the bridegroom Adventist group. And these two groups that came out of bridegroom Adventism were the uh, literalists and the spiritualizers. So you had the spiritualizing bridegroom Adventists, and then you had the literalizing bridegroom Adventists. 
And the spiritualizing view, like I said, began March of 1845 by an individual by the name of Orlando Squires. So he, he started a paper known as Voice of the Shepherd. And in this paper, he essentially spiritualized like every aspect of Christian belief, right? So this included rejecting a literal heaven, rejecting a literal destruction of the world by fire, uh, rejecting a literal resurrection, rejecting a literal body of Jesus, uh, and it also rejected a literal second coming. And the paper, Voice of the Shepherd, proposed that all of these were accomplished in a spiritual sense within the Christian's own experience. So this introduces a, a, an element of subjectivity to all of these events because they occur within a subjective sense within the, you know, the believer's own experience. And this causes a great degree of confusion. But then you have the, the literalizers who, by contrast, believe or still believe in a literal second coming. They, they still believe in a literal body of Jesus, a literal resurrection. And suffice it to say, tension grew between the, these two groups because they had two different worldviews in how they viewed um, spiritual things. I'm assuming that the spiritualizers didn't last very long after, after they started fighting with each other. Yeah, that movement definitely started to, uh, to fizzle out, uh, to say the least. Uh, so it was, it was definitely a short-lived movement. Uh, and at this period of time, there would have been maybe a few hundred people that, uh, that congregated toward, you know, the spiritualized, uh, view. Uh, and many of them, I think some of them ended up joining the, the Shakers movement that had started like back in the 1700s. Another interesting thing to note as a side note is the context in world history that all of this was happening, right? Because you're, you're saying that all of these branches and divisions started happening in the Millerite movement. Some of them went on and joined other movements, but as far as religious movements are concerned, this was a period of huge growth like a lot of religious movements that are still around started around this time period. So I just think that that's really interesting that the, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is just one of these groups that emerged during this time frame. I, it's interesting in context of, of time, but also in location. The, the area that, that we're talking about that, that many of that these groups started in was upstate New York. Mm. You had uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints that started in upstate New York uh, with Joseph Smith. Uh, then you have, I believe, the Jehovah's Witnesses movement that I believe also started in upstate New York with Charles Taze. I'm trying to remember the, the specific time. I don't remember it offhand. It's probably either the, eight, the 1860s or 1870s, I want to say. Basically, yeah. in, the, in the late 1800s is where yep. a bunch of these groups started popping up. And mm -hmm. I just find it interesting that Adventism was one of them. Um, 
But yeah, so we talked about the spiritualizer group. What happened to the literalist group, right? The ones that believe that Jesus is still literally going to come to earth. And, you know, that's still how they interpreted scripture. Is this literal group what eventually became mainline Adventism today? Yes. So uh, the Seventh-day Adventist Church as a denomination comes out of the literalist bridegroom branch of post-Millerism. Uh, and this was the smallest faction. So the, the literalist group was smaller than the spiritualizing group. So at this point, we're talking maybe potentially less than 100 people that were in this original uh, literalist group. So it was just a, a, a minority uh, of people. And the reason why I bring this up is because to segue into what will become our next episode, we've mainly focused on one character in Seventh-day Adventist history, which was William Miller. Right, he's he's the one that started it all. That started the Millerite movement, which we explained what they were into, what they believed, what they preached, which eventually started splitting into different movements, which then at the very end of all this became what eventually became the Seventh-day Adventist Church, right? So at this point, more people are in the movement, but it's a very small amount of people. You said it's probably less than 100 people who are part of this minority group that will eventually become the modern Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now, who else comes into the scene? <laughs> what other character do we want to introduce at this point um, that comes into the scene in the very early Adventist movement at this point? So Ellen White uh, becomes a very important figure within the, the uh, literalist bridegroom uh, camp. She quickly rose to prominence, uh, especially after her first vision in December of 1844. Perfect. And I think this is a great place to stop because the next part now that we've kind of laid some groundwork in the context of early Adventist church history and how the Adventist church came to be, we really want to shift our focus from this just timeline picture of the Adventist movement to Ellen White. And I want to start the next episode talking about that first vision because we have some really interesting things to share about the nature of that first vision, um, how it was published, I was edited. Um, and then also want to talk about Ellen White during her lifetime. Because the, the big picture of this series is we want to talk about how we got from early, early Adventist church history to the emergence of Ellen White to the canonization of Ellen White as the spiritual figurehead within the Adventist church to the weaponization of Ellen White in the Adventist church to modern, it's 2023, what kind of relationship does the Adventist church have with Ellen White? So that's kind of where we're headed. That's the, the big picture of where we want this discussion to go. So definitely stick around because we want to shift our attention to that. So our next episode, like I said, will be about Ellen White's lifetime. How did people react to her during her lifetime? What kind of impact did she have in the early Adventist church? 